Jesus gives his apostles a missionary assignment. He doesn't make them missionaries, but he gives apostles a missionary assignment. Now remember who these men are, right? Not many mighty, not many noble, not many theologically trained. But Jesus chooses these ordinary men. Most of them were what by trade? Do you remember? Fishermen, right? And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to catch people from now on. But notice here in verse 7, he summoned the twelve. There were many other people around, weren't there? Who were following Jesus from place to place, other than the twelve. We, we learn about a group called the seventy. There's about 120 beyond that. People that are constantly following Jesus, they're not leaving when the free lunch is finished, Right? They're, they're following him, but he's chosen, he's chosen in his divine authority, he chose 12, right? And so now he is summoning the 12 to himself, he's calling them to himself, and he's giving them a particular assignment. They were under Jesus' authority here in Mark 6. Jesus was the one doing the sending, and he chose the apostles to be an extension of God's sending mission. We know that the New Testament teaches that God's mission is one of sending. He sends people. Right? That's the way that he works. He, he could communicate the saving truth of the gospel to you in your alphabet soup. Or in your cereal. You know? He could appear to everyone in a cloud or something like that. He could, he could do that like he did with the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't. What he does is he's in the business of sending human beings who know him. Who've walked with him. Who've experienced the saving knowledge. Knowing Christ Jesus as their Lord. He's sending those people. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans 10. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. But how will they call upon him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? When we hear the word preacher today, we get the idea of someone like this who stands on a stage and has a weird microphone. You know, but it just literally means there in Romans 10, a proclaimer, somebody who will open up their mouth. I think of the old black and white movies where there's a little kid on the street corner with a stack of papers saying what? Extra, extra, read all about it. That's how they would sell a paper. Listen, this is what's going on. Did you hear about this? That's God's design. God is a sending God. He sends people. He sent Jonah to the Ninevites. Jonah didn't want to go. Couldn't God have saved the Ninevites some other way? I'm sure he could have. But it's not his design. His design is to send people. And he sent each one of us into a particular mission field. I talk about this all the time. Maybe not enough. But we all have 
a particular mission field. You intersect with people every day and every week in your neighborhood, your workplace, your kids' ball games, your retirement center, wherever it is that others in this room do not intersect with. And though we have a shared mission field of Maricopa and Pinal County and the surrounding area, we all have unique mission fields and God in his wisdom has sent you to that place. He's ascending God. He always has been. He always will be. The nature of God's mission is ascending mission. Today we see how the Lord works and how God is glorified through his mission. Perhaps most shocking in this passage is how the Lord's way of accomplishing his mission through sending agents seems counterproductive in the eyes of human beings. But again, that's how the Lord works. That's how he's glorified. So the first thing that we notice this morning is that the apostles are sent with unique authority. They are sent with unique authority. There's something that happens to them and through them as the Lord Jesus says, I'm giving you authority. They're doing things like healing sick people. They're laying hands on sick people. They're anointing the sick with oil. The sick are being healed supernaturally because they're operating in the authority of Jesus. First-hand authority. Also, what are they doing? They're casting out demons. They weren't casting out demons before they met Jesus, before he gave them authority. They don't have that authority because they're rubbing shoulders with him or because they happen to be in the same vicinity of Jesus. Jesus gives a particular group of people, 12 men, he gives them a specific kind of authority here. Now, we have to be careful because there's a tendency when we read about things that happened historical things, whether it's the Gospels, whether it's the book of Acts. It's tempting for us to read history as though it is dictatorial. Where God is telling us this is something prescriptive. This is something every Christian should be doing all the time. This passage is a story about an event. Something that happened. Jesus empowered these 12 men. We need to understand that this is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. So, as a church and as the church today, in 2021, the authority that we minister in is different than the authority of these apostles. Okay? Okay? But you'll hear missiologists say, well look, go back to, if you want to know how to do mission work, go back to Mark 6. Missionaries should have nothing on their person except a staff and some sandals. There you go, missionaries. It's right here. Missionaries have the authority to go out and cast demons and heal people. That's what mission work should be. People should go out and lay hands on people and heal them. If you don't do that, then you just don't believe in the authority of Jesus. No, we do. We do believe in the authority of Jesus. But it's something peculiar here because he's doing it through the 12. He's not doing it through all the people that were following him. And if there were a church at this point 
all of the church wasn't doing this. It was a particular group of people. So this is a descriptive passage of scripture. Not a, not a prescriptive one, but a descriptive. It describes what was going on and what Jesus did in this particular point. As a matter of fact, we don't even see all the time in the apostles' ministry that they were doing these things. It's only when Jesus specifically said, I'm commissioning you now to go and do this. They would come back and they would report what had happened. So, with what authority do we minister among the lost today? Do we have any authority? How is our ministry unique? We minister today by the power and authority of God's word. We have God's word inspired from cover to cover by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves as we share God's word with people. Man-centered psychosocial approaches to moral reform and human flourishing is bankrupt. That is, any approach, any plan that we have to change the world apart from the word of God is bankrupt. It, it leads to nothing. That's why it's so important that we minister under the authority of God's word. Even, even though most of the time today it cuts against the grain, doesn't it? Of cultural philosophy. It, it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard for some people. To, to hear God's will and God's design for the way that people ought to work with integrity, with honesty, right? With love. To, to read about how God intends for the family to work and human relationships, human sexuality. Ooh, that hurts to hear in the culture today. One man and one woman for life? No way. The authority that we have in God's word is one that is not accepted in the world today, but it's the authority God has given to us. It's not an authority that wavers and, and changes and has to catch up and get progressive and be up with the times and change philosophies, change worldview, keep up with Disney. When David confronted the giant Goliath, and said, you come to me with sword and spear and shield. You know what David, the shepherd boy, said to Goliath? You come to me with these things, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies that you have come against. You don't need to be afraid of the army, per se, but you better be afraid of their God. David did something that Saul was unwilling to do and that every soldier in Israel was willing to do was to go out and declare, this is our authority. This is our authority. It's not in armor, swords, shields, spears, military might. We have the authority of God because we're his people. 
And he has promised us. David was standing on the promise of God. That was his authority. Because he believed God was a God of his word. He was going to keep it. He was going to deliver them. And so he stepped out. The Apostle Paul wrote that the word is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Likewise, the old Christian hymn reminds us that it can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. The power of the gospel, the authority upon which we stand. The word of God makes all the difference. Amen? So we must commit ourselves to it. If it is our weaponry, if it is God's design or our authority on our mission, we must commit ourselves to it. So many ways. We have to cultivate a love for it. There are so many distractions today in our world, aren't there? Things to make you anxious and worried about what tomorrow brings. Do those worries and anxieties drive you to the word of God? To your authority? Or do they keep you from it? Do they distract you from meditating on the word of God? Cultivate a love for God's word. Meditate on it. Hide it deep within your heart like a treasure. Hide it. Put it away. Preserve it. Speak it. Pray it. The psalmist says, you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. The authority of the word of God. These apostles were sent with a unique authority from Jesus himself. And you and I are sent into our mission fields with a unique authority from the word of God. The second thing we see that they're sent with is unique equipment. And this is where we really start to scratch our heads, right? When we come to verse 8 and 9, the Bible says he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. So there are two things that, and it's not as though Jesus is saying, I'm going to allow you to take these things because I know you're always taking these things along. But I believe he's being very specific here because of what we learn later in this passage of what he says they are to do. And we'll get to that in just a moment. When they, what they're to do when they leave a place. But notice the things that you would think would be helpful on a mission, right? How do you fund a mission? I mean, we talk about giving to missions all the time in this church because guess what? It takes money to send people to places. It takes money to sustain them in the work. And so we partner with many missionaries around the world 
around 4,000 missionaries internationally we partner with, we give to on a regular basis. And more church planters and missionaries in North America we partner with and we support financially. And we ask you to give generously because we want to be able to send people and, and provide for them so that they can think about the work and not have to think about coming home for two years at a time to raise funds and then go back to the mission field. But here Jesus tells his apostles, don't take anything with which to store money. Don't take any, you can't have any money in your belt, nor can you take a, some scholars believe that the bag, he's talking about the money bag is like a beggar's bag. A bag that people would take and if others see they have a countryman in need. Here's another Jewish brother who's going around. And he's spreading the good news. We don't know exactly what it is, but he seems to be doing well. He's got a bag and he's in need. Let's give him some money. Right? It's kind of like the first century version of a GoFundMe account. Right? You've seen the GoFundMe pages? I saw a picture not long ago. Uh, probably somebody old like me who said, Go fund me in my day. And it was a picture of a kid behind a push mower and he's leaning into it with all of his weight, you know, trying to push the mower on a yard that's got really high grass. And I laughed because I was like, yeah, that was go fund me during my day. If you want money, go push a lawnmower, mow somebody's yard and tell them I'm at your mercy. Whatever you feel like blessing me with, I will mow your yard. Would it really hurt for Jesus' apostles to take a money bag? Probably not. But when, when God sends his people out on the mission, it's all about glorifying God. It's all about bringing him glory. So in God's design and in Jesus' design, they were to go out with no money carrying, no money holding devices. No bread. No sustenance. They couldn't even take that elvish bread in Lord of the Rings. That Lammas bread. Terrible looking stuff. Can't even take that. No food, no money, nothing to gather money with for people who show you mercy. Most people would not blame the apostles if they carried a beggar's bag or some bread for their journey. So why is it? It's because God gets the glory in his mission. I preach the Old Testament. You know I do. Why do I preach the Old Testament? Well, first of all, because it's the word of God. But secondly, it shines so much light onto God and things that we encounter in the New Testament that make us scratch our heads. Like this situation with the apostles going out. Turning your Bible to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. Abram is learning about the Lord. This is before his name was changed to Abraham. Abram is learning things about the Lord and the way that God works. 
in chapter 12 that we're introduced to Abram. God comes to him late in life. He's in his 70s and God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your seed. You're going to have children. Uh, go, go outside, look at the stars. Uh, your, your seed is going to be greater than the stars that you see in the sky. Go walk on the seashore. Can you number the sand? That's how I'm going to bless you. Interesting, Lord, because I'm in my 70s. And I'm, I'm getting into, I'm in retirement. I'm happy where I am. I'm with my family. God says, go that direction. Leave your people. Leave everything. Go the direction that I'm telling you to go. And I will bless you and make you a great nation. He says in chapter 12. And as he goes along, Abram learns certain things about the way God works. He goes into these different cities. And he learns that God is going to provide. No matter what. And so when he comes against the armies of the king of Aram and in the valley of the Sedim and he conquers, he, he, he rescues his nephew Lot and he plunders the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They come out and they try to strike a deal with him. And they say, listen, give us all the stuff that you plundered. In verse 21 23, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Give me back the people, take all the, the loot. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Abram shines light on what it means to trust the Lord with meager equipment. What it means to trust the Lord and to glorify the Lord with the situation that God has given you. He's careful. Paul says all things are lawful or acceptable. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, the, the Christian life is not one that says we're going to get by with bare minimum. We're going to try to just get away with what we can. No, it's pursuing excellence. When it comes to glorifying God in the mission. So Jesus is saying, I don't want you to take anything. I want you to taste what it's like to depend fully on the Father and to watch Him work. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so awesome. And what glorifying worship these apostles are going to express to the Father when they see Him provide for them. Like He was providing for the son, when they see Jesus ministering, they go, what's he doing? They're going to experience it here. They were sent with unique equipment, a staff and some sandals. But these are the weapons, these are the instruments of testimony 
Because that's what's most important about this mission. Sometimes we think that the mission of the church, the things that are most important about the mission of the church, is that the church expands, right? We measure the success. The metrics of whether or not we're successful in our mission is how many churches are we planting? How many missionaries are we sending out? How many baptisms? How many countries have we been in, right? These are the ways we measure success today. And it's not all bad. It just bumps up against what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, I want you to go to a city and I want whenever, whoever the first family is that says, come into our home, I want you to stay there. Stay in that home. Don't take anything. No money. No bread. Well, how's, how are we going to multiply this, Jesus? I mean, if, if we meet people who are like, well, we want to follow Jesus too. We want to be like you. We want to be his disciple. And they discover this is how you treat your disciples. No money. No bread. They're not going to want to follow you. They're not going to want to be a part of this movement. It seems counterintuitive to what we're trying to do. And Jesus is going, probably if they're thinking this way, Jesus is going to say to them, what you're trying to do is not what I'm trying to do. We need to be careful as Christians and as a church that what we're trying to do is what Jesus is trying to do. And what God is wanting to do. And I'll confess to you as your pastor, man, sometimes I get these things confused. And I look to the resources that I perceive that we need to succeed. Unique equipment. And then finally, his apostles were sent out with a unique strategy. When we get into verse 10 and 11. Wherever you enter into a house, that is, whatever city you go into, and you enter into a house in that city, Stay there until you leave town. And this is interesting. I, I don't know everything that's going on here. But I think, I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying that the impact that you have on a city is only, is only as impactful as you have on individuals and on homes and on families. So when we say God has called us to Maricopa to plant a church, we want this church to grow, we're going to impact this city, we have to start here. We have to start with each other. We have to be involved with each other. It starts relationally in homes. And Jesus doesn't say, I want you to just go from house to house. But I want you to stay in that home. And this is what we see Jesus doing throughout the New Testament, don't we? He goes to people's houses. People who, people's houses who most righteous folks would not darken the door. People like Zacchaeus. You all know the song. For I'm going to your 
house today. Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. You don't have to look at me from afar. I'm going to go to your house. And he goes and he's ridiculed by the Pharisees and the scribes. He eats with sinners and tax gatherers. See, this wasn't just something unique for a first century rabbi to go into people's homes. But it was unique for these apostles because the type of people that would accept them into their homes are people who wanted more than first century Judaism. They wanted more than they were getting in the synagogue. They wanted more when they heard about Jesus. If they were sick and cast out by the community because of their sickness... Those are the people that when the apostles came into town would say, would you come into my house? Would you stay with me? If I'm an apostle, I want to say to Jesus, Jesus, can we choose the people whose homes we go into? It's like, no. When someone invites you in their home, you go in their home and you stay there. You stay there until you move cities. Because God is going to work through people and he's going to work through people who are desperate for him. We usually don't think about what the apostles had to endure, what they were thinking about, but they had to stay in that home. It was a mark, it was, it was obedience to the mission of God. This is a unique strategy. It was unique for the apostles to go and do something like this was strange. Verse 11, he says, In any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now, it's important for us to recognize that this is not a personal thing. Sometimes when we use this phrase, shake off the dust, I shook the dust off my feet, and we're referring to this passage, we talk about it in such a way as like when someone personally is an affront to you, right? Gives an affront. Somebody insults you or they don't like you. Or says, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and move on. This is not in an individual context because of what he says at the end. He doesn't just say shake the dust off your feet as you leave town. He says shake the dust off your feet for a testimony against them this is serious because now he's saying to the apostles not only do you have a target on your back for entering people's homes that most people probably won't enter and staying there now you're going to have a target on your back as you leave a city a city where no one was desperate enough for the presence of God and salvation that Christ offers no one was desperate enough To invite you into their home. They cared more about their reputation. They cared more about their stuff. In that city, as you leave, knock the dust off your feet for a testimony against them. They have rejected God. And this is not a new concept. The Jewish audience would have understood what that means because it comes from the Old Testament. It is essentially saying this place is cursed by God. 
They have turned their back on God himself. In a sense, what Jesus is saying, when you dust your feet off as you leave this city, you are saying to that city who thinks that in their rejection of me, they are serving the Father, you are essentially saying, no, you've rejected the Father. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Fully man, fully God. The one Savior, the one Messiah. You have rejected him. There is no forgiveness of your sin if you trample underfoot the blood of Jesus. A bigger target, target is on their back now because they've said to their kinsmen, their countrymen in all these Jewish cities, you have forsaken God. You've said no to God. Do we have that boldness as Christians today to say to people, if you turn Jesus down, you've turned God down. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Have we watered down that message as Christians today? Said so you can reject Jesus now. There'll be another chance. You'll, you'll go to heaven. You'll get another opportunity. Don't worry. Don't stress over it. Live your life now. Just do whatever you want. We may not say that, but by our silence, are we, are we saying that? Jesus says, you're not going to leave this city. You're going to leave this city, every city that you go in, with a, t with a public testimony of what that city did with me. The message of salvation. It's a unique strategy. It doesn't make friends, does it, easily sometimes. It doesn't make sense sometimes. It's abrasive even at times. The finality of it seems closed-minded and unmerciful. I mean, do you guys have to do that? Shake your dust off your feet as you leave the city? Sounds petty. It wasn't petty at all. Jesus was saying, this mission is unique. This is a sending mission. You are going in with purpose. You're not just to be there. You're not just to be present. You are to be working. Paul says we are an aroma. We are a fragrance in the world. For some, we are, an, we are a fragrance. We are an aroma of life to life to others from death to death. But brothers and sisters... We are to be an aroma of salvation. The message of the gospel. The weapons, the instruments that Jesus tells the apostles to take are unique because of what he tells them to do when they come out of the city. He tells them you're to wear sandals. Many times we think that the instruments that we need for ministry are the things that are likened to the way that the world would do things. It might seem obvious that Jesus would tell his apostles to wear sandals, but he wants to make sure they are equipped not for taking care of themselves or for all the worldly anxieties, but for the very purpose of preaching the gospel, dusting off their shoes as they leave the city. God has given us his word. It's our authority. He's given us his word as the instrument. 
that we are to use, that we are to proclaim. It's going to offend. It's going to seem unwise at times to proclaim it. But on the last day, on the last day, the books are going to be opened. The one who's faithful and true is going to be crowned. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the only thing that matters in this life that you did and that I did of significance as a testimony for people is what we did with this. Did we hide God's word into our heart? Did we send it deep within the wells of our soul and use it? The testimony of the Lord to share with our neighbors. God's sending mission. The apostles were unique, but God still sent.